Are we, uh, are we ready to go? Well, in this final session, I would like to talk about how to go from... Oh, I've got this on, sorry. How to go from forensic forgiveness, that is, you know, uh, legally forgiving somebody, which is what we just talked about, to emotional forgiveness. How do I get to the point where, you know, I've not just made a promise, I've not just legally forgiven him, but I actually feel as though this person has been forgiven. So Kim and I had been married for less than a year. It was Saturday morning, and she was hurt by something I had done. And no matter how hard I tried to um, apologize and even to reason with her, I couldn't get her to um, get out of her uh, funk. And so I decided to do something radical. I think she had gone off to the bedroom. So I wrote her a note explaining that I was going to the store and making it clear that I'd be back in 20 or 30 minutes. I was just going to leave, you know, and not tell her where I was going. Unless she think I was being vindictive or something. So I left the note on the kitchen table and went to buy some flowers. And um, you know, I distinctly remember the drive to the flower shop. Uh, I had to pass my office because we live near my office. And so I'm in the car, and I'm like arguing with the Lord. Like, how come she's so unreasonable? Why won't she listen to me? Lord, help her to understand that she's the one who's being unreasonable here. You know, so I'm like really, really struggling in my, in my feelings towards her. I'm kind of angry because I don't think she's treating me fairly. But meanwhile, so like in my heart, I'm cursing her. Well, curse is probably too strong, but you know what I mean. And, but with my body, I'm on my way to bless her. I was going to get her some flowers in the hopes that, not that that would solve the problem, but in the hopes that I could demonstrate my love for her. So basically, as an act of my will, I was going in direct contradiction to my emotions. And sometimes as Christians, that's what we, that's what we have to do. Did I lose power? That's what we have to do. Hang on, let me see if it's me. No, I'm good. So I had to go against my feelings. Now the whole basis of this is found in a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans. It's Romans 12.21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In my mind, I was trying to do the right thing, and she was responding in a sinful way towards my attempts to be a peacemaker. And I knew what this passage said. I'm going to explain this passage to you this morning. But it says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as I continued driving to the store, trying to fight my bitterness, my emotions continually tormented me. I was really, really frustrated and angry. But nevertheless, I'm doing the right thing. So I go into the flower shop. And the moment I picked up those flowers and held them in my hand, my whole attitude changed. Everything changed. I can't wait to see the look on her face when I surprise her with these flowers. She's not going to be able to handle this. She's going to melt. Here I am, blessing the socks off of her when she knows that she's treating me in an ungodly way. 
By the way, I have permission to tell this story. I walked through the door with an entirely different attitude than I left with. And as I presented the flowers to her, she was obviously moved. And I, again, I knew the flowers were not going to solve the problem, but it sort of set the stage for us to continue to talk. And probably in about 15 or 20 minutes, we got the whole thing resolved. So understanding and applying Romans 12, 17 through 21, I believe is the key from moving to forensic forgiveness to feeling forgiveness. So let's look at this. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect, or as we'll see, it really means think ahead or plan ahead to do what is right in the sight of all men. If it is possible, so far as depends on you, believer, be at peace with all men, believers and unbelievers. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. And here's the summary statement. This is the bottom line. Don't be overcome, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, Again, I want to focus your attention on the last verse because that's the summary statement of the paragraph. It's really the river into which the preceding verges, uh, verses converge. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This imperative contains two different commands which will need explanation. The first command is difficult the second is really, really difficult. The rumor has it that Spurgeon and um, Moody would argue about which, who was more afflicted. One of them had gout, and the other one had um, uh, one had gout, and the other had arthritis. And so they would argue, and one of them says to the other, "Do you know what arthritis is like? It's like putting your hand in a vice and squeezing it until you can't stand it anymore." And, and, and he said, and, and gout is giving you two or three more turns. <laughs> These are both, as you'll see, very, uh, several people at the break said, boy, this stuff is hard. It is hard. It's humanly impossible to do. But I'm telling you, when you see what this verse says, you're, you're going to be tempted to be incredulous because it's really difficult. So the first injunction is do not be overcome by evil. That is you may not lose in your personal battles against evil. If you lose, you're sinning because you're commanded not to lose. You're actually commanded not to lose this particular battle you're fighting. Now, before I explain further, I need to call your attention to the fact that this entire paragraph is filled with terminology of war. Although some believe that Christianity is a pacifistic religion, the Bible is filled with battle terminology instructing the believer repeatedly to have the mindset of a soldier. And the passage in front of us is a prime example of this. In verse 17, you're warned against the improper use of weapons and briefed on the importance of developing a battle plan. 
verse 18 stresses the importance of peace, which is the antithesis and the desired result of war. Verse 19 cautions you not to take personal revenge and provides you with guidance on the do's and don'ts of retaliation. Verse 20 provides you with instruction on how to destroy your enemy with coals of fire. And twice in verse 21, the wartime term for conquer appears. You check out this verse in other places in the New Testament, you know, especially in the book of Revelation. It's clearly a term of war. Now, who is this enemy spoken of in this passage? The enemy is evil. Evil people and the evil that people do. So here you are fighting evil and the Lord tells you, you may not lose. That is, you may not allow your offender's sin to conquer you, to overcome you. You may not retreat. You may not surrender. You may not give up. You may not throw in the towel. You may not wimp out. You may not allow his evil to prevail against you. You may not allow his sin to provoke you to sin in response. I told you it was tough. Now, what are some symptoms of battle fatigue? I mean, how many battles have you lost? Do you have any symptoms of battle fatigue? Here are a few common indications that you may have been overcome by evil. Thoughts of resentment towards your offender may indicate you're being overcome by evil and you're growing weary in the battle. Telling yourself things like, he'll never change or I just can't put up with this any longer. If you tell yourself that, you may have been overcome or on your way to being overcome by evil. Un unnecessarily limiting the scope of your communication. Again, giving the person the cold shoulder. Allowing anger to keep you from confronting your offender biblically. Allowing yourself to become sinfully angry, anxious, or depressed about the way in which your offender has hurt you. Allowing your hurt feelings to keep you from fulfilling your biblical responsibility, uh, responsibilities, especially towards the person at whom you are bitter. Resorting to sinful, retaliatory actions such as Gossip, slander, pouting, sulking, quarreling, withdrawing, name-calling, temper tantrums, threats, and abusive speech. If you have even one symptom of battle fatigue, you're, you've almost certainly lost a battle by allowing the other person's sin to overcome you. You've responded to sin with sin and are in violation of Romans 12, 21a. Do not be overcome by evil. As difficult as this may be for you to believe, the second commandment in, in this verse may tempt you to even greater incredulity, for it's even harder to obey. The second injunction, Romans 12, 21b, is overcome evil with good. Conquer evil with good. 
This is an imperative. It's a command. It's an injunction. What Paul is essentially saying is, you may not accept anything less than victory in your personal battles against evil. You must win the war. Paul is saying you may not cease from pursuing your opponent with good until you have won the war. You ought to pursue the enemy until the enemy gives in. There's no place in this verse for stalemates, no place for standoffs, for impasses, for mutual bilateral disarmament, no deadlock, no cease fire before the victory. You are not to be conquered, but you are to conquer. The question is not, how long can I hold out in the face of his attacks, but rather, how can I get the biblical resources that God has given me to fight with in order to defeat the foe? Now, the second commandment, command, not only requires you to win the battle, but also defines the means you must use to secure the battle. You see, God is not only interested in whether you win or lose, but how you play the game, how you fight the battle in this case. Means are very important to God. And the only means whereby you may defeat the enemy, indeed can defeat the enemy, is by using good. Your weapons must only be those armaments that can be considered good in God's eyes according to the Scriptures. And with this state of the art, artillery, that the Lord has provided you, you can fight back harder than your opponent because blow for blow, good has more power than evil. You say, well, this retaliation doesn't sound very Christian to me. Besides... Romans 12, 17 through 19 seems to forbid all forms of retaliation. It does not. Let's look back at the entire passage. Never pay back anyone? Is that what it says? No. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. The passage actually doesn't forbid all forms of retaliation. It forbids retaliation in kind. You may not retaliate in kind, that is, with evil. You may fight back, but you may only fight back with good. The ammunition you load in your firearms must be bullets that are biblically certified as good. And your motive is not to hurt, but to bless your offender with goodness until goodness overtakes his sin and motivates him to repent. Consider two more New Testament passages that contradict the passive approach. Here is 1 Peter 3.9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a, blessing, giving a blessing instead. For you were called to this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Rather than returning evil for evil or insult for insult, you're to actively give a blessing in return. That's hardly a passive response. Turn the other cheek is not a passive response. It's a proactive weapon. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after. You see how active that is? Always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men, for believers and unbelievers. 
The term seek after in this passage may also rightly be interpreted as persecute. Up in verse 14 of Romans chapter 12, this very passage, right? He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Well, this way, word, seek after, is a word for persecute. Basically, he's saying persecute the other person with good. That's hardly the response of a doormat. But what about turning the other cheek? What you're saying seems to contradict the words of Christ. No. I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is more of an aggressive command than you might think. It is actually an offensive weapon designed to win the war against evil. A lot of people think that Christians are supposed to be doormats. No, as Jay Adams points out, the Christian can no more take a passive attitude towards evil than his Lord did. He came into this world to take captivity captive. He came to destroy the work of the evil one and to render him powerless. He disarmed the rulers and authority and made a public display of them. There is nothing passive about the cross. The cross was active. He was sanctifying himself Sacrificing, he was sacrificing himself for the sins of his people to free them from the chains of sin, the chains of sin and the devil. Why then should they willingly submit to the shackles once more? The Bible teaches the violent, not passive, overthrow of the enemy. He must be smashed to smithereens, demolished, utterly devastated. No quarter may be given. His power and place are to be destroyed. The Christian position is the most violent and aggressive one of all. Now, that's countercultural, but that's what the Bible teaches. Remember, the enemy is not necessarily your enemy, but the evil that your enemy may occasionally inflict on you. It's not that you're going to do your enemy in so much as it is you're going to do in the evil that he does. To use a more vivid uh, metaphor, look at it this way. When your enemy shoots at you with a pop gun, you may fire back with pepper spray. He pulls out his water pistol, you, you fight back with your flamethrower. He hits you with a pea shooter in your forehead, you engage your missile launcher. He brandishes a slingshot, you pick up your bazooka. He resorts to a scud missile, you launch your Patriot missile at him. The only thing is... Your weapons must be biblically certified as good. You can't use evil. That's the idea. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Really, it should be translated, the word is phraneo, to think ahead. Plan ahead to, to do what is right in the sight of all men. It's a participle that literally means to think of beforehand. God is saying that you must plan your next response to evil before the next battle. Got to have a battle plan. You must anticipate beforehand, right? Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer, right? You've got to anticipate beforehand how you're going to respond to the conflict so that when you find yourself in the heat of the battle, You'll not respond to evil in kind, but you'll respond with good. By the way, this has tremendous applications, not only to husband and wife, but to parent and child. 
This is how soldiers are prepared for battle in basic training. They're drilled on how to fight before the battle so that in the heat of the combat, they will respond automatically in the right way. They're drilled over and over and over again until it becomes second nature for them to fight the right way. And so it is with us. We've got to practice. We've got to think ahead. We've got to train ourselves. We've got to have a battle plan thought through ahead of time, maybe two or three different options, so that in the heat of the battle, rather than pulling out a sinful weapon, we'll know to pull out a righteous weapon. So do you know exactly how you're going to respond to your offender the next time he sins against you? Have you prepared your arsenal? Have you cleaned and loaded your weapons? Have you practiced fighting with them? If not, you likely pick up the first familiar but sinful weapon at hand when the bullets start to fly and thus be overcome by his evil rather than overcoming his evil with good. The next command has two clauses. One is conditional. The other one is unconditional. If it is possible... As far as depends on you, Christian, be at peace with all men. So the first stipulation is conditional. If possible, live at peace with all men, believers and unbelievers. It's not always possible for a Christian to be at peace with an unbeliever. That's why even though marriage, for example, is supposed to be a permanent thing, the Bible says if the unbeliever depart, you must let him depart. Why? God has called us to peace. There's not always peace between a believer and unbeliever. But there is no reason why there cannot be and should not be peace between two believers. Indeed, they're commanded to make every effort to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as we saw on Friday. Now, the second clause is unconditional. So far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. You must pursue peace with all men. And when you see that phrase in the Bible, all men or all people, it's usually talking about believers and unbelievers. So you must be at peace with them regardless of their response to you. Your obedience to God does not depend on the response of others. Your love for your neighbor or enemy should not be conditional in that it's not predicated on his love for you. Regardless of your offender's willingness to be at peace with you, you should be willing to be at peace or at least initiating and pursuing peace with him, especially if he is a fellow believer. Now, if your offender is not at peace with you, you shouldn't automatically assume that it's because he's not at peace with God. It may be, but that shouldn't be your first assumption. It's possible that the reason you're not at peace with him is because of some things that depend on you as much as depend on you be at peace with all men. So let me suggest in the form of three questions some reasons why your offender may not be at peace with you. These three things depend on you. First question, have I provoked my offender to evil? Your offender's evil against you may in part be a sinful response to an evil that you first committed against him. And you have to consider that. Well, he's not exonerated because you provoked him. I mean, he shouldn't have, he's a Christian, he shouldn't have responded back to you that way. You're required to seek his forgiveness for any sin that you've committed that provoked him to evil in the first place. Yeah, but my sin was like 10%, his sin was 90%. 
Assume 100% responsibility for your 10%. Take the initiative. Ask his forgiveness for what you did to provoke him. And see, again, if humility doesn't beget humility. Have I protracted or aggravated his evil by a sinful response in return? It's possible that rather than responding with good to your offender's sin, you may have responded in kind, perhaps with more evil than he inflicted against you, and that such a sinful response on your part has contributed greatly to the lack of peace. Maybe he started it. But you responded sinfully. And maybe, man, today your sin in response was worse than his sin to provoke you. You have to consider that. And then, number three, have I prolonged the problem by not dealing with it quickly? Conflicts between believers are to be resolved expeditiously, right, quickly. If you're presenting your gift to the altar, drop what you're doing, get it reconciled before Sunday if possible, then come and offer your gift. The longer you wait to resolve them, the more bitterness and suspicion can take root and fester. The next command is verse found in verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Have you ever wondered why the Bible forbids you from taking your own vengeance? Why does God insist on doing it for you? Well, there are at least two reasons, at least two. First, God has not given you or any one person the authority to take personal vengeance on anyone. What Paul is addressing in this passage, you remember, is personal conflicts against evil people or the evil that people do. It's the next chapter, Romans 13, that Paul deals with the official corporate or governmental right of God-ordained authorities to execute vengeance. For he is a minister of God, an avenger, does that word sound familiar? Who brings wrath, leave room for the wrath of God, on the children of disobedience. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is not something for us to take personally individually. Ultimately, God is the only one who will directly or indirectly right all wrongs. Vengeance is lawlessness because it doesn't recognize the lawful and righteous execution of God's judgment, which he will bring about in his time. In other words, as I pointed out on Friday, vengeance is impatience with God. You must remember that all rights can't always be righted right away. Vengeance does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. If God said to you, you know, this is my crown, or this is my book, would you go up to him and take the crown off his head or take the book out of his hand? I wouldn't do that. Why? That would be stealing. Oh, what do you think you're doing when you take your own vengeance? You're stealing something that God says is his. Don't do it. He didn't give you the authority to do it. The second reason you're forbidden to execute your own vengeance is because you really don't have the ability to do it. You don't have the ability because you don't know all the facts necessary to make the proper judgment. Remember we looked at this verse briefly, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and disclose the motives of the heart. There are certain things hidden from you which only the Lord knows. And so you don't have all the information you need to execute judgment. Suppose your enemy, your offender, is suffering from a physical disorder that makes it easier for him to become angry. That wouldn't necessarily exonerate him, but if you knew that, you might be prone to be a little more merciful to him, right? Because mercy rejoices against judgment. Or suppose he's done the same thing to 12 people over the course of the last six months, and he really deserves to be clobbered. You don't know that. And so you don't have the ability to execute vengeance the way God does, and that's why he says you've got to wait. You don't know his motives. They might be better or worse than you realize. Only God knows what they are. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The amount of vengeance required by God's justice is predicated on his knowledge of men's motives to which you have not been given total access. Keep that in mind the next time you're tempted to be vindictive. All right, we're now ready to unveil the ultimate weapon for dealing with those who fight against us with evil. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Paul and Solomon tell us how to do it. We love people by meeting their needs, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. That comes from the book of Proverbs. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is the ultimate weapon to use against those who habitually offend us. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. If they have needs, take a look at your, whatever their needs are, take a look at your resources and see if you can't get your resources to meet their needs. See, this is how you go from forgiving someone forensically I mean, you just try meeting the needs of your enemy and see if your feelings don't change. You just try loving your kids or loving your husband or loving your wife when she's unmerciful or un-whatever, fill in the blank, and see if your feelings don't start to change rather quickly. I mean, even if they don't, it's the right thing to do. But this is the weapon that God has given you to fight with. Okay. I understand my marching orders, but tell me, what about those coals of fire? What are they? Since virtually everything I've talked about I learned from my my friend and mentor and fishing buddy, Jay Adams, I'm going to read you what he says about the coals of fire. Basically, the coals are your good deeds, deeds heaped upon him. So, Dr. Adams says, remember, Paul in his, has warfare in mind. In his day, they didn't have flamethrowers, but they knew that fire was an effective weapon. If you could get coals of smokeless, undetectable charcoal, as the word here indicates, on your enemy's head, you would have effectively put him out of business as an enemy. You would subdue and overcome him. So picture the troops holding your heights above the pass. Secretly, you've heated large beds of charcoal to white heat. As the unsuspecting enemy passes directly beneath, you shovel them on his head. You have him. You've defeated him. He's rendered powerless, helpless. You've stopped him in his tracks. That is the picture. 
Well, there's a lot more in this passage, but essentially, essentially, this is the means that God has given us to go from forensically, legally forgiving someone to feeling as though we have actually forgiven that person. We love our enemy. We bless those who curse us. We do good to those who hate us. We pray for those who despitefully use us. That's the secret of going from a legal forgiveness to an emotional forgiveness. Okay, I think we have plenty of time for some Q&A. And again, we will uh, entertain first questions about the material on bitterness and the material on overcoming evil with good. So I get the concept of like, you know, we're supposed to return good to evil. At what point is there a balance? Um, for instance, there's a family member of mine who struggles with narcissism. And so the effects that's had globally on our family, at what point do you have boundaries within that so that you're able to protect yourself and yeah. your family from yeah. the pain and effects of like mental health issues? Okay. So <clears throat> I struggle a little bit with the word boundaries, but it's a, it's a very good question. I think you have to zoom out. One of the good weapons that God has given you to fight against evil is to reprove your brother. One of the weapons that God has given you to fight against evil is to take another brother with you. One of the weapons that God has given you in some cases to fight against evil is to call the police. Do you understand as long as God says it's good, because the, the powers that be are ordained by God, as long as God says it's good, they are in your arsenal. It's just a matter of wisdom to know when to do it. So you have to look at these quote-unquote. Now, a lot of the boundaries people use are unbiblical, and so I, I, it's part of what I struggle with. But So I, I don't like to think primarily in terms of boundaries. I'm thinking of what good weapons has God given me to fight with. You know, if it's calling the police, it's calling the police. If it's calling one of the elders of the church, it's calling the elders. If it's reproving, if it's bringing two or three people and having some kind of a, you know, Matthew 18, it's, it's good. It works. Uh, I need, I need, yeah. Yeah, I probably need a little more information, but, um, you know, and part of it's going to depend if, if they're a Christian, if they're not a Christian. If they're Christian, yeah, sure. they go to the Bible-believing church. You know, if they, if they profess to be Christian, they go to a Bible-believing church, then I think you use the Matthew 18, the biblical resource, you get other people. If they're not uh, professing Christians, or if they are, but they're not really connected to a healthy Bible-believing church, then you have limited um, options but again, you have, to look at, you have to look at the good that on one hand they'll recognize as good and then good that they may not recognize as good but it is a weapon that you can fight with and they may not know it but you do and you're free to use that, uh, that kind of a weapon. You know, the Bible does talk... Uh, the Bible talks about how to respond to a fool. A lot, especially in the book of Proverbs. And so, um, you know, 
if I were counseling someone in your situation, we would brainstorm, we'd look at the options, but I would probably start with, math, with Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be her folly, lest you also be like her. Answer a fool as her folly deserves, lest she be wise in her own eyes. You know, and then you're talking about an 80-year-old woman who may be starting to dement. I mean, there are other situations in there, in, in which case, like we talked about, the weaker brother, um, you're going to have to... Mercy rejoices against judgment. Sometimes you have to err on the side of mercy rather than the side of judgment. So there's a lot, there's a lot of biblical principles that come into play as you're trying to figure this out. You probably have ultimately several different um, battle plans that would fit the bill for good. It's just a matter of sitting down with someone who can help you strategize and come up with the best fit. Um, it may not be. It, it may not be quite that easy. If this person is a parent or a grandparent, you're obligated to honor your father and your mother and your grandparents. And so there's a way to sort of put the ball in their court and basically say, "Mom, Grandma, I want to have a relationship with you, but you're gonna have to play by God's rules, or you're gonna have to at least respect the fact that we play by God's rules. If you're not willing to play by God's rules, it is gonna affect our relationship." But then, I mean, I don't know how you honor your parents without every once in a while, whether it's three months, six months, every once in a while, picking up the phone or writing a letter and say, hey, the ball's in your court. When you're ready to play by God's rules, we're here kind of a thing. That was a good question. Um, you said that Forgiveness is not the same as trust. Right. Um, years ago, something happened to us, and um, and uh, we we didn't make uh, good uh, business um, decisions. But that's not the thing. Is that um, with that incident, I don't have trust uh, issue. I I uh, especially with business um, dealings, I I always have to check check it out and. And it's like a wall. I, I, you know, it's just like even my daughter says, you think people's going to cheat you or something? I have that um, feeling. So, um, and I, I don't dwell on it, but when anything happens like that, I, I remember it and I, I haven't forgotten it. Okay. And so my question is, um, how do I, you know, and that person is not a Christian. It's a, it's yeah. a, I don't know. He yeah. went to jail and everything. But mm -hmm. the thing is, I don't want, um, you know, I, I want to trust people. But mm -hmm. it, it's just that it, I, I, I check them. I, you know, I, yes, I understand. So that's my question. Okay. Have I really forgiven them? It's not a, you, you, look, I, I only God knows your heart and you know to a certain extent. But it's very possible that you've forgiven someone and you don't trust them. It's not wrong to not trust someone who's proven themselves to be untrustworthy. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken foot, a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You're not obligated to trust somebody that's untrustworthy. You're not supposed to put people like that even in ministry and in 
you know, um, a faithful man, a trustworthy man, who can find? It's hard to find people like that. So you can lawfully not trust someone who's, who's done things wrong and still forgive them. They're not mutually exclusive. The, the danger comes when you become inordinately suspicious of people in general. My latest book is, called, is a book on suspicious, a little booklet, and it talks about people who are unduly suspicious of other people. The default position for us as Christians, especially with other Christians, is you believe the best. Love believes all things. What that means is this. If, there are ten, if I do something and it's like questionable, and there are ten interpretations of what I do, and nine of them are bad, and only one of them is good, and it's a little bit of a stretch for you to believe the one because it's, you know, it's kind of hard to believe. Unless you have evidence to the contrary, if you love me, you're going to reject the nine and hold to the one, unless there's evidence to the contrary. So being suspicious of this person or of other people, maybe, for example, you've caught in lies, that's not uncharitable. But you have to guard against allowing yourself to be suspicious of people who have not given you good, solid, biblical reason to be suspicious. So maybe that little booklet, I forget what the subtitle is, How to Overcome Paranoid Thinking. That might be something that gives you some help to, to help you figure out, you know, is it right for me to be distrustful of this type of person or is it wrong for me? Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. That's really an important question. So I got two questions. First one is, is every conflict need to be resolved? Every conflict. So that's my first question. And between, between Christians or between two people who are not Christians? Between spouse. <laughs> uh, as much as, as, much as, 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 much as, as, yeah, let me, let me ask, let me do it one at a time. Well, I know you all don't want to ask this question. As much I'm as, for you. as much as depends on the Christian, the Christian must be the peacemaker. The Christian must try to solve the problem. Now, if he tries or she tries and it doesn't work out, then she's tried, her conscience is clear. Uh, the conflict is unresolved, but it's not the, 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 the believer is not coupled because the believer has tried to resolve the conflict. The thing that makes it tricky is if the other person is a believer and he will not hear you, you may be biblically obligated to try to get somebody else involved also. But the short answer to the question is no, it's not necessarily wrong if the conflict goes unresolved as long as, as much as depends on you, you're being at peace and you're trying to resolve the conflict. Okay. What's the second question? The second question is... Um if you try to bring restitution to uh, the, the offended side, restitution, like you know, you want to make things right. Yeah, you want to try to resolve mm -hmm. the conflict, mm -hmm. but uh, you sense that the person is not ready to to uh, wanted to even mm -hmm. deal with the the conflict. Mm -hmm. So, what would you do? Do you is it biblical, biblical to just wait until the person ready, or you just come like? Over times and there's a principle that I'll give you, and then it's a judgment call on different ways to apply the principle. But 
The Bible talks a lot about a good conscience. Paul, in, in, in the book of Timothy, in the first chapter, he talks about the dangers of not having a good conscience in the first chapter. And then I think in the second chapter, he talks about it. Paul said in the book of Acts, I exercise myself to have always a conscience that's void of offense towards God and towards man. So a good conscience doesn't mean that you've, you've necessarily kissed and made up with everybody, but it means that you've not sinned against anybody without at least trying to go back and make it right. And so technically, once you put the ball in their court, if they say to you, I'm not ready to do that, then I think you're off the hook, at least temporarily, and you say to the other person, look, you know, uh, do you want me to contact you? Do you like me to call you when you're ready, or would you like to contact me? So basically, you put the ball in their court, and then it's a judgment call whether you basically say, you call me, or I'll, I'll, or I'll try calling you again, and we'll try to do this again. I would say probably after a couple of tries, though, if the person is unwilling, your conscience is clear, you're off the hook, and um, I, I don't know that you, you necessarily have to continue to pester the other person who's not willing to deal biblically with your confession and repentance. Does that help? Okay. When, and some of your uh, delivery, you were talking about um, emotion and responding to uh, your emotion regarding uh, a situation that was really tough or whatever. And uh, we know that emotions lie. So how do you uh, balance that with uh, responding to your emotion with the fact that m many times we can become captive to emotions and emotions do lie? Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, I have to do that all the time. It's like, welcome to my world, you know. Um, the thing you have to remember is that um, our emotions are generated by our thoughts and our actions. And so, you know, you can't just directly change an emotion. If I asked you, hate me right now, come on, hate me, you know. You'd have to stop and think, how am I going to hate this guy, you know? I have to figure out something that I have against him. And then after a while, you could probably figure something out. But that may be a lie, that may not be, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, you can't just turn your feelings on and off like a switch. But by changing your thinking and bringing your thoughts captive and thinking on what is true and honest and just and pure, little by little, you can change your emotions by changing the way you think your internal response, and by changing the way you um, behave outwardly. Now, that's the short answer. If you want to give me a specific, I can maybe show you how to do that. Is it a, is it a solution if I elect to uh, send myself a bouquet of flowers? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, I, I think your emotions would change quicker if you sent the flowers to someone else. <laughs> More questions? Hi, I'm Tita. Um, I had a, a question regarding um, the. Well, in the Bible, they say a lot about the fool. Mm -hmm. and, there's three um, different, three different Hebrew, four actually different Hebrew words for fool. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's different, um, and there's a specific way to 
kind of deal with the fool. Mm -hmm. um, there's also different ways, and it's, it's contrasted dramatically with someone who's childish or maybe just the sinner or the brethren who's I think one of the words off. for fool actually is a fool that's especially childish. Yeah, I think that's one of the words, but anyway. So how do you determine when to move from, like, to, to label something foolish versus childish or foolish versus brethren who's sinning or... Um, someone who doesn't know. I mean, there's lots of different I, ways I, I to think there's probably it. an overlap there, and I'm not sure that it necessarily, it always requires to make such a distinction. In my book, The Heart of Anger, um, I, I've, I've gone through the book of Proverbs and I've identified um, different 25 characteristics of a fool. Actually, there are a few more in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it would become familiar. It would be good to go through the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, identify the, the fools, even if you just use an English Bible, and then take note of the way the Bible says you are to respond to a fool. I mean, for example, the Bible says a fool, a certain type of fool, will not be corrected with words alone. So sometimes you have to, there, there needs to be the correction of the stocks or the rod or some, there's some kind of a, of a more severe form of, of uh, approach you have to take with someone who is a fool because they will not, they will not um, change just by words. But that's an example. Answering a fool according to his folly so he doesn't walk away wise in his own eyes. You answer them in such a way. You know, you think about all the people who try. I wrote a little booklet on manipulation that might give you some insight. Um, how many people tried to manipulate Jesus? Lots of people. Who succeeded? Nobody. Why? Because basically he answered everyone according to their folly, so they walked away. He got me. You know, they walked away not being wise in their eyes the way they thought they would be when they first tried to manipulate him. So I think it's really going to be a matter of your studying um, what the Bible says about different ways to respond. And again, um, there is more than one way sometimes to respond. If you're going to err, you know, you're going to err on the side of mercy. You're not necessarily going to um, confront every foolish response, especially if you're dealing with your children. You want to zoom out and look at the patterns of sin. So when I wrote The Heart of Anger, you know, I'm, I'm going through this part in the book where it talks about the characteristics of a fool I remember one morning I was shaving, and I was thinking about that verse that said, though you crush a, crush a fool in a pestle along, uh, with a mortar in a pestle along with a crushed grain, his foolishness will not depart from him. And I remember thinking, Lord, are you saying there's no hope for this guy? I mean, think about it. He, you know, you can, you can crush him in a mortar and pestle, and still he... And the more I thought about it, it's like, yeah, there is no hope for a fool until he becomes wise. And so the goal is to help a person or a child, whoever, become wise so that to replace the, the foolishness with the wisdom. And, of course, that's a process. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but... Thank you. Okay. So I know somebody who... Um, is dealing with bitterness and unforgiveness and they're not a Christian and they're dealing with bitterness towards someone who sexually abused them. Mm. Um, and they are, they're 50 now and they're still having nightmares and panic attacks and things like that from, and I know what it's from, but they're not a Christian. So you mentioned that, you know, to be, to forgive is 
so hard that the Holy Spirit helps us do that. Yeah. So how would one relate this to someone who is not a Christian? Is Can they, can they have that kind of healing forgiveness where it stops the, the mental dismay of not of harboring that unforgiveness? Well, I think, I think the most important thing in a situation like that is that you try to evangelize that person. You, know, you try to present the gospel to them because it's ultimately going to be that that enables them to forgive to the nth degree the way that we can. Now, if they're not a believer, yeah, there probably are things they can do like not dwelling on it. There are probably other things they can do, but you know, you have to be careful with giving non-believers shortcuts to solving real problems without giving them the gospel. So I would encourage that, probably if it were me, I would encourage them to seek help from a biblical counselor who would assess the fact that they're not believers, help them understand um, the benefits of being a Christian and try to evangelize them and then give them biblical hope. Uh, again, sometimes when I deal with people like that, I'll say, now look, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm going to give you, I'm not a psychologist, or, or, I don't hold myself out as a therapist, I'll be happy to tell you what the Bible says, uh, but you have to understand that you may not be able to fully utilize it. I mean, I basically tell them, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, there's, a pro there's an answer, God has an answer for every problem you just told me about. The bad news is, you really can't have it until you become a Christian. But I do think there are things, tentatively, that unbelievers can do to ease the pain. Uh, and, you know, um, it's difficult because you, you want to be merciful to them, you want to be compassionate to them, you want to throw them a bone or give them something. But on the other hand, you know, if you give them a shortcut that takes away all of their pain, they may not see their need for Christ and might not really get mm, the whole... They, they might end up playing cards with a 47-card deck instead of a 52-card deck. So you've got to offer both. Yeah, that's a tough question. So with a non-sin issue, oftentimes you can still be breeding um, resentment and bitterness in the other person due to just disagreement. I, I have a different opinion on it than that other person. But from their perspective, in order to minimize that bitterness they require some level of alignment in order to, to show them that you understand their, their situation. Does God require you to line up with their unbiblical thinking? No. So, yeah, my question is, how do you help to minimize that bitterness and come to more reconciliation, even though you disagree on how to approach it? I think I understand the question. Probably help if I had an illustration, but or an example. But let me let me try to do it generically. I, I mean, I think communicating to them that you understand how frustrating it is for the fact that you're not on the same page, to be able to say, look, you know, um, we're not going to be able to cross every T and dot every I exactly the way, but I do respect your opinion. And you know, we're talking about an unbeliever now, right? No. Oh, we're talking about believer can disagree on something. No, I, um, I think if it was a believer, I'd put pressure on the person to recognize that they don't have a case. I mean, get, make up an example. <laughs> so, so with family situations, let's say I would approach something one way, but 
my my parent or my my sibling would approach it a different way, and it causes a level of well, is it is it a matter of you know? There's more than one way to ice a cake. There's more than one. There's there's more than one way to solve a problem biblically. So if it's not a wrong uh, option, and the other person wants to take the slow boat to China rather than the fast plane to China, you know it's okay for them to do it that way. You don't have to agree on everything. Um, it just depends if you know if it depends if like it's a husband and wife or a parent and a child where, where there's going to be more pressure on one person to get on the same page. But if the other person is basically saying, if you don't do it my way, you're sinning, and the Bible doesn't say that you're sinning by doing it your way rather than his way or her way, then I think you have to say, you know, where is it written that that's the only way or the best way to do it? Now. Does that mean that sometimes, you know, sometimes you yield to the other person? Sometimes, look, I really think your way is going to take twice as long. It's going to be twice as expensive. But you know what? It's no skin off my nose. If you really want to do it that way, okay, we can do it that way. I think sometimes you can make uh, a compromise like that. Um, but, uh, you know, not without uh, making sure the other person understands that um, it's probably not right for them to put too much pressure on you to do things uh, that the Bible doesn't require you to do. Okay, so I'm, I'm asking this for another church. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. So just like in a church, right, you have uh, difference of opinions, different of, um, ways of doing things, and so that can cause conflict, right? Sure. So how, what, what is your suggestions um, on how to, I guess, have unity within a body of believers that, you know, have different way of doing things. Does that make sense? Uh, our, our unity unity in the same church or unity between two different churches? Within the same church. Um, uh, again, are we, we talking about sin issues? Are we talking about non-sin issues? Non-sin Okay, that's where I... I don't want to just give you a general answer. That's why uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but a specific example would really help me. I mean, I, that's where you have to be forbearing with one another. That's where you have to put up and recognize the fact uh, that God made all of us different. And even sometimes on doctrinal issues, um, um, people in the same church have a little different perspectives. Um, and I think on some doctrinal issues, you know, minor doctrinal issues, we have to give each other freedom to disagree with each other. A doctrinal issue might prevent someone from being a church officer or serving in leadership, but uh, I don't think that minor doctrinal issues should cause us to, should pressure us to break fellowship with someone. If you gave me something more, I, I feel like I'm just, you know, putting a band-aid on your question, but if you can give me a specific, I probably could do a better job at answering it. Okay. All right. So you talked a little bit about righteous anger um, and forgiveness. Uh, I think most everybody here is aware we have a daughter that left our family about five years ago and just left her kids with us. And I get really angry when I have to explain to them why she's gone and why she's not there. Um, do I have to, is that a one-time forgiveness or do I go and forgive her every day when I, when I think of her, see, I'm angry. <laughs> when I think of her and, and what she's done to the family, 
and it's ongoing. She's been gone five years. We've yeah. had maybe two conversations in that whole time. Yeah. So, you know, it's one thing if someone stabs you and takes the knife out and says, oh, I'm so sorry, would you please forgive me? If the knife is in there and every day it's being twisted and they don't even acknowledge that it's hurting, that is much more difficult. I think it's a situation where day by day you have to ask the Lord to give you the grace to uh, keep the promise of forgiveness and give you the wisdom to know what to say, what not to say. But it's a whole lot more difficult to forgive someone when they are present, indicative, active, sinning against you 24-7. There may be other things you can do. I don't know what you have tried to do, but there are going to be times when, you know, you've done everything, you've done everything that you can do, humanly speaking. It's like faith without works is dead. Well, you know, you've done all the works you can possibly, there's nothing else biblically you can do. You just have to kind of maintain your, your works as you're trusting God, but your faith can continue to grow even though you're kind of stalled out on what your biblical options are although you have to make sure you don't dip. You have to make sure you keep your biblical responses even. But that is a, that's a very difficult situation. Again, I think it's a matter of unpacking it, repacking it. Lord, you know, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray for her. Um, give me the grace to not dwell on what she's done. Show me how to overcome evil with good. Give me the wisdom and the grace to know what to tell my friends. I mean, not everyone is entitled to every piece of information, right? I mean, Jesus would dangle his parable in front of somebody and walk away. Not everyone has a biblical need to know everything that's going on. But, you know, you have friends who you want to share with and give them more details. But uh, I guess my encouragement to you is that, you know, that is heartbreaking. And um, um. It's much more difficult when every day you wake up and the knife is still in there and, you know, the other person doesn't even reckon or, or knows that it's there and is no, unwilling to take it out. You have to depend on God's grace. For this thing I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And you have to depend day by day on God's supernatural ability and desire to do what um, he wants you to do in that situation even though it's difficult. And you know, and when you do that, you're suffering for righteousness' sake. So is it like every day I have every day I have to ask for forgiveness or every time I get really angry with her I have to ask for forgiveness? Or? You get angry with her when you're talking to her or you get angry with her? No, just, we don't talk. We, yeah. We, 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 yeah, no, I would, just, I would just confess my anger to the Lord and say just give me the grace to think biblically about this thing. Okay. And again, I think with somebody like that, um, I'm trying to think where I have it. I think it's in the bitterness book. I've got this section, and it talks, it talks about how to love somebody in abstentia. How do you demonstrate love to someone when you don't see them and you're not talking to them on a regular basis? So uh, I think it's in the bitterness booklet. Anybody have a copy of that here by any chance? Anyway, um, and there's a list. Basically, I take 1 Corinthians 13 and take love is patient, love is kind, and show you how even in absentia you can love the person even though they're not here to receive your love and that way overcome evil with good. Okay? Okay? Uh, In today's talk, you talked about, there's one verse that talks about how you forgive someone in your heart. Mm -hmm. You refer to Mark uh, Mark 11, 25. Can you explain that verse to me a little bit? Um, You have have a few minutes to do that. 
Um, there are two views. Some people hold the view that it really is talking about granting someone forgiveness and that what Jesus is talking about is you forgive anyone who's asked you to forgive them. Sort of like we've talked about here. And that is possible. There's a good argument for that. Um, other people hold, as I said, that it's a matter of being willing to grant the person forgiveness and you've got to, um, you, you, you've got to do something to keep yourself from becoming bitter, i.e. forgive in your heart and not sort of like you make a personal commitment to yourself, like we're talking about here, not to dwell on it, not to muse on it, but rather to think good about the other person, to pray for the other person, uh, and certainly to be willing to grant that person's forgiveness once they acknowledge their sin. But there's this, you know, scholars disagree about that. Both arguments, um, both arguments are, I think, pretty good. Okay. We, have to, we have time for one or two more questions, depending upon how in-depth your question goes. you have anything you'd like to add in closing before we... Just that it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. And uh, like I said at the very beginning, I know you probably feel like you've taken a drink from Fire Hydrant. Don't leave here trying to apply everything. Just ask the Lord to show you one or two things. And uh, ask your family members what they recommend you work on. And, uh, you know, uh, keep the rest of the stuff in your peripheral vision, but don't get too bogged down in the fact that, you know, um, there's a lot of areas in your life that still need work. Okay? Thank you. Could you close right. us in prayer? Yeah. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you, Lord, um, for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, for its amazing uh, practicality, the fact that it is the discerner of the thoughts and the motives of our heart, that it cuts us to the quick, that it teaches us what your standard is, that it convicts us when we violate that standard, but it doesn't leave us there. It's profitable, it's useful to correct the problems in our life and then ultimately to train ourselves in righteousness so that the problems don't return. We thank you um, for the Holy Spirit who enables us little by little to become more like Christ and we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to forgive us of all of our sins and iniquities. And it's in his name that I pray, amen.